Hello, Doobie listeners. My name is Adam Venrick, and you are listening to The Coffee Hour. Today's guest is a professor of theater here at Denison University. Please welcome Dr. Cheryl McFerrin. Professor McFerrin, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Adam, for asking. And, you know, you probably by rights should welcome Lola and Sparkle, (laughs) my two animals, because they will likely make an appearance during this interview. (laughs) Well, we'll enjoy hearing from them. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I think since quarantine, we've all developed a healthy appreciation for everyone else's pets, uh, even yes. more than we had before. But, yes. <laughs> um, uh, Professor, we're here to talk today. Um, and if I slip up and call you by your first name, I apologize. I try and be very formal in these interviews. But uh, as anyone who takes a theater class will but, know, but... it's not the most formal department. Um, That's true. At Tennyson. <laughs> um, but uh, we're here today to talk about sort of one of the great uh, stereotypes of the theater world. Um, whether it's true, whether it's not, and what can be done about it. And that is uh, the myth of the... Uh, the terrifying and terrible acting teacher, um, which uh, Professor Yu, I believe, wrote your dissertation on. Is that correct? Well, um, it's sort of because I I wrote on a on a particular exercise that was made famous by Lee Strasberg, who was a terrifying acting teacher, <laughs> um, though he was also beloved by many. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he, yes, and I'm sure we'll get into the particulars of that. Yes. Um, but I'm also thinking of Maria Uspenskaya, who was, um, and and I may be pronouncing the Russian incorrectly, but but she was uh, sort of the original terrifying acting teacher. She uh, <laughs> she would you know make her students cry, Aww. and um, she also did more than tipple. She definitely drank in class and, um, you know, was legendary on so many fronts. Not exactly um, the paragon of virtue that, that we might like for our, for our fellow actors. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk. <laughs> well, uh, before we, before we get into, um, before we get into, Talking about acting teachers, uh, you yourself are teaching an acting course this semester, uh, which I know because I am in it. Um, but uh, before we get into that, I want to ask the audience, uh, just tell us a bit about yourself. Give us some of your background, how you got into theater, how you started teaching. Um, what drew you to this, Professor? Well, um I was thinking that I'd like to do that by the numbers today, mm, so because mm-hmm. um, uh, because that, uh, I think, gives me a great deal of credibility, but also terrifies me when I think about how long I've been doing this. <laughs> so uh, I started acting in a recreation center program 45 years ago. Okay. And I have been a professional actor for over three decades. Okay. Um, almost into my fourth and um, I also uh, have been teaching for more than 25 years. So, mm-hmm. um, so I have been doing and thinking a lot about acting for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, how did I, and I think that I came to acting really um, 
my mom doesn't like it when I when I ascribe my desire to be an actor to my Aunt Betty, who I saw in uh, children's theater productions um, as, as a little tyke. I mean, you know, that was such an amazing experience for me to go to the theater mm-hmm. and see her perform. Uh, my mom thinks it's genetic and that I got it from her because she, <laughs> she was an actor in high school, but I never saw those productions. So I, I really, I think it's nurture, not nature. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, but you've been teaching for, uh, for quite a while now, as you said, uh, has it always been at Denison or how long have you been at Denison? Uh, no, it has not always been at Denison. Um, I, I'm in my 12th year at Denison. Mm-hmm. Um, and had, I started teaching high school actually in 1991, mm-hmm. uh, which was a couple years out of my MFA program in Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really liked teaching, but I didn't like having parents come to class. <laughs> <laughs> so about 1994, I, um, I left that particular position and started teaching um, at the community college level. I went back to school and got my PhD mm-hmm. studying acting theory mm-hmm. um, at CU Boulder and uh, completed that in 2003 All right. um, and came to Denison in 2009. So I, I had been teaching all along the while and and numerous different things, not only acting, but also theater history. Mm. I taught French. Mm. I taught English. I even taught one semester, very poorly, music for kindergartners. (laughs) And that was perhaps my greatest acting challenge. (laughs) I was terrible. (laughs) It was not very good. I hope no no one was scarred. Um, I enjoyed that thing you said about you like teaching the children, but you didn't like it when the parents would come to class. Um, yeah, that's, that's just a good It's a lot of pressure, you know, and I, I think I was, you know, that was probably, I imagine they've always been, there have always been helicopter parents, but, Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, the nineties as the children, as, as the baby boomers started sending their kids to high school. That was probably the, the overparenting era starting to kick into high gear. Yeah. So, um, I, I never knew any different, but yeah. th- that was not the experience of my childhood. And my folks were both educators. Okay. Uh, well, I, I'm very curious, and this is off topic, but did you ever have to deal with any stage parents? You know... Um, really not. Okay. Um, that's perhaps because what we were doing was so, so obscure. It wasn't obscure in the sense of the material that we were doing, but you know, Denver, Denver was not the, the hotbed of theatrical activity that, you know, LA might've been. Mm -hmm. So had I, had I been in a different market, maybe I would have encountered those, but no, not in Denver. Well, Mostly supportive parents. That's good. I, it's always, we like a supportive parents. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to move on now and talk a bit about uh, something you brought up earlier, which is uh, 
acting and performance theory, so I want to talk about um, method acting. What is method acting? Well, method acting um, is really the type of acting that was, um, what's the what's the word? Propounded. I mean, it was the it was the um, it it was the theory that was advanced and taught by Lee Strasberg. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a very particular kind of realistic acting, and and uh, realistic acting is that which we'd recognize as um, mostly an American style of acting. Yes, that which is emotionally sort of true to our experience of reality. It's very internal, uh, or often very internal, and Strasberg taught it as um, something that would be emotionally true. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the beef that I have with that is that um, it was true for Strasbourg. Oh. I mean, he was the arbiter of truth. Mm. So it, even if it had been true for the actor, he was looking at a particular kind of thing, and most of that involved uh, watching somebody degenerate into some sort of puddle of tears. <laughs> and, and I think there are other truths out there as well. Outside of melodrama? Well, outside of just um, personal crisis. Yeah. Um, or reliving. Uh, and and Strasberg was after getting actors to relive um, experiences that they had had. And that is the exercise that I studied in my dissertation. Mm-hmm. It's called emotion memory or mm-hmm. emotional recall or mm-hmm. emotion. Re- it's, it's called a bunch of different things. But suffice it to say that that exercise is one where you find, um, well, Strasberg called it taking a minute. Mm. So he would ask the actors to sit in a chair and to recall a specific experience and to trace that experience through all of their five senses. Um, but essentially they would, they would just uh, recall those things um, somewhat privately until something happened to them. Mm-hmm. And then Strasbourg would, would praise them or, um, or, or not <laughs> depending on, uh, you know, what they had performed And what I learned in my dissertation is that so often those who have experienced trauma go, they they can't help but go to that traumatic experience. So that even if you tell them, you know, don't, as Strasberg did, he said, don't work with anything that's that's, uh, not at least seven years old. Mm. And as if seven years was the perfect amount of distance to get from something that had happened that had been, um, you know, particularly powerful. Um, that they go to that memory because the, the neurobiology or the, the neural pathways are really well-worn. And um, so they can reproduce, recreate trauma um, through this exercise. Uh, So I began to think, wow, this is really not something that teachers of undergraduates should be messing with. (laughs) Even 
even if it is this exercise that you know has has been taught you know i think we should be a little bit critical about what's going on here and the power dynamic between teachers and their students um especially teachers of young adults i i was gonna say because it seems like even with that seven year gap um you know like i'm 21 right now so a thing that happened seven years would have happened when i was 14 and i don't know i don't think trauma from a 14 year old can be particularly healthily processed even at a 21 year old level i think well i think the only way to process trauma Mm -hmm. is with someone who is trained to to help people um, heal. And what I was really conscious of is that that is not the training of an acting teacher. No. You know, uh, we, we do all kinds of things and we enable all kinds of um, emotional encounters, right? But what we're really trying to produce is something other than um, the processing of of psychological material, we're not we're not trained for that, mm-hmm. and um, it becomes really problematic. Now, as a sideline, well, there are two sidelines that I'd like to take you down. Oh, and I'm sorry, I'm so I'm so loquacious. No, it's all right. The, I've chased the dogs away. By the way, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> that's how much I've been talking. No, <laughs> but, it's okay. It's okay. I, I like this because if I if I can talk as little as possible in terms of follow up questions, that that's usually good on my end. Okay. So yeah. Please. Well, the first first thing I wanted to share is that I came to I I came to my PhD program really to study this. And while it took me several years to sort of formulate the question and the territory that I was going to investigate, I had been living with an experience from my own undergraduate experience or undergraduate years. And that was, um, I was, uh, I was a, a, you know, first year student at UCLA and felt that my talent and gift was not being fully recognized. I wanted to go to Juilliard or Yale. And so I began to think about uh, auditioning. And I had a wonderful piece um, from Hermione in The Winter's Tale. Mm -hmm. And I I decided to work on that piece with my acting teacher. And so we were in a private coaching session. And he led me through an emotional recall experience. And he pushed me so to the brink of a real breakdown um, and then praised me for my vulnerability and for my affect. I mean, I was sobbing. I, I conjured the word somehow, but what he said to me upon seeing that sort of breakdown was like, if you do it just like that, I know you'll get into Yale. And I was like, holy crap, I'm, <laughs> I'm never doing that again. That way madness lies. I mean, that was, that was intense. No, no human should have to do that. And 21 years ago, or 21 years after that, I finally figured out why that was so problematic. 
So, um, <laughs> you know, call it being a slow learner or call it being obsessed by um, this experience that had been so troubling. But um, it was it was incredibly formative because uh, I had been harmed by this very thing. So I wanted to um, to follow that through. And the other thing I was going to say is that um, Strasbourg himself is, was quite a different person. He had quite a different makeup mm-hmm. from me, I think. Um, and that was also something that I learned throughout my research um, was the idea of uh, what Robert Landy called um, emotional, well, he called it affective distance uh, or uh, aesthetic distance, really, but he's talking about affect. And he says that um, that aesthetic distance is when uh, feeling and thinking are balanced. And he talks about the fact that for some people, some people are very close to their inner psychic lives. Yeah. I think I'm one of those people. You know, I cry at Hallmark commercials. <laughs> I'm very aware of what's going on with me emotionally. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, that's I'm I'm a hypersensitive person. Yes, and always have been. I don't think Strasbourg was that way at all. Yeah. I think Strasbourg had a great deal of trouble getting to revealing his emotions, and that was due to the fact that, you know, he lived through the war. He was an immigrant. He was a child of immigrants. There were all kinds of details from his history that mm. may have resulted in him being a little closed to that experience. So he had further to go, right? And so I think that this exercise that he glammed onto or glommed onto was um, a way for him to express. Mm. For me, it's, it's not that. It's, um, it's something too intense. Yes. So modulating um, is, that is, is really tricky. And again, I just was like, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> maybe we should know about it, but you know, only those people who know that they have never experienced trauma and that they are not this sensitive should, should be messing with this. Yeah. Um, I would ask you then, um, you know, obviously I, uh, with realism, a lot of it is getting to the emotional point, um, of the play. I don't know if I phrased that particularly well. Um, but what, I guess I would ask, what do you think is a healthier alternative to what Strasbourg was doing? Um, I think the imagination is a wonderful tool, right? Okay. I think that... Um, I also think that, uh, you know, what we're learning in acting class, this idea of doing... Mm-hmm. Rather, doing first and then seeing what happens as a result, mm. both to one's partner and to oneself. Um, preparation, uh, research, all of those things can fill. I like what Carol Rosenfeld says in the book that we're using. Mm-hmm. Plug for her, shameless plug. <laughs> that book would be um, Acting and Living in Discovery? That's correct. Okay. Um, 
but but she says, you know, what do you need to fill your tank? So if you have if you have rehearsed and you have this sort of well-rounded imaginary picture of what's going on and you're clear on what you're doing and you're watching and listening to your partner, you have everything you need. Something's going to happen that is in keeping with the playwright script. And so we don't really need to go back to um, our past experiences. We can live in, in the moment, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in that present that is so fruitful. Yeah. Well, and then I'm, I'm curious because I do, I like that incidentally. Um, but I, I'm curious then, do you think that method acting, at least as Americans tend to understand it, do you think that that's a healthy creative process or do you think that it could potentially, um, do you think that it's potentially somewhat destructive? Well, I think method acting mm-hmm. in the way that Strasbourg taught it is a little bit extreme. Okay. <laughs> um, and I know it works for some people. Uh-huh. Um, some people really like it, but you know, I also wondered somebody like Daniel Day Lewis, who is such a gifted actor mm, mm-hmm. um, and such a proponent for himself, was a proponent of method acting um, in the way that he understood it. You know, so he would sort of put himself in his character's situation and live that for the entirety of his filming. I, I wonder the impact of that on him and if that's not the reason he decided to retire it's like wow that's that's hard yeah that's that's a lot you know maybe maybe you should achieve work-life balance (laughs) (laughs) there's um there's a great uh there's a great satire on method acting i don't know if you've seen it but it's called shadow of the vampire which i know sounds stupid but it's about um it's about this urban legend around the filming of the movie Nosferatu that the the guy who played the vampire was a vampire and so it's Willem Dafoe and John Malkovich um and oh. Willem Dafoe plays this oh I know two two it's it's a powerhouse of performances but Willem Dafoe plays this actor this method actor um and you basically watch him as this sort of like caricature of an insane method actor it's hilarious and yeah like it just a I shout can't. out while we're shouting things out. What's it, what's it called? Shadow of the Vampire. It's hard to find. Oh, I used to have it on my iTunes account, and then it just disappeared one day. And I don't know what happened to it, but I'd really love to find it online if I could. But, yeah. I'm going to look for it. While we're shouting things <laughs> out, I recommend that movie highly um, to those who like a good, dry, dark comedy. Um, <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, you know especially when you're dealing with um, really potent fiction, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's enough there to really investigate yeah. that, that is fun and um, make-believe um, that we don't, we don't need to go into the you know, inner recesses of our psychic experiences to unpack that. Yeah. Um, we, can, we can do other stuff that's really that's that allows us for instance to leave the theater um you know so that it's not it's not constant work um otherwise it's just a little too crazy making (laughs) yeah um 
and I mean, this is something I know you've talked about in class uh, a fair amount, um, but of course, Konstantin Stanislavski, um, who I think we, we would sort of credit with developing the idea of method acting. Um, well, he, he, he is the father of realistic acting. Of realistic acting. Strasbourg and and the prob- and and herein lies the rub Adam, yes. because because Americans think that realistic acting is method acting mm. and I would say that method acting is an extreme version of realistic acting mm. um, not in the sense of and then there's also naturalism, which is a whole other thing. You know, that slice of life realism that was practiced uh, in the early days of when when Stanislavski was an actor. Um, but I think that um, you have to think of the historical context as well. Um, Stanislavski was coming out of a very presentational style of European acting. Yes. Um, and he felt like he was an old hack that, you know, had lost the joy. And so he began to investigate his own experiences and tried to systematize um, something. And from that idea of system, um, Strasbourg took method, you know. But he, Strasbourg even called it the Strasbourg method. You know, it's the Stanislavski system, but the Strasbourg, Strasbourg method. <laughs> Um, and, you know, golly, does it really matter? I don't know. Um, we find what works. And uh, I would like to, to support a gentler model. Yeah. And um, lesser known fact, Strasbourg uh, was studying with people who had taught early Stanislavski, mm-hmm. like Stanislavski's system at the beginning of his investigation. And Stanislavski moved on. He did other stuff, right? But but because of what was taught in 1923 in New York by Boleslavsky and Uspenskaya, who drank in class, right? And and Boleslavsky, who called his female um, students the creature, oh. right? Have, if you've read um, his book, um, no, I haven't. It's like, yeah, good heavens is right. I mean, um, and and they developed a three-year program of acting, of actor training, right? And at the end of that, they allowed people to sort of perform in plays. Mm. Um, Strasbourg studied with them for five months and called it good. Oh, no. He was like, yeah, I don't need all this. I know. I learned it all. I'm a, I'm a gifted person. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, if I didn't know so many people who would do the same thing, I would call it unbelievable. But that just feels like theater. Um, but bottom line, um, so we have the stereotype of like the abusive acting coach or the abusive director. And I don't know why, but I, you know, I feel like that can come in two forms. Uh, on one hand, I think of maybe someone like Alfred Hitchcock, who once handcuffed someone to a camera overnight um, and was also, you know, a predator. Um, Or I think of, like, 
the the stereotype of like the abusive high school theater director who just yells at 15 year olds. Um, do, do you feel oh, that that's- Shout out to Will Ferrell and his Saturday Night Live um, <laughs> sketch about yeah. that. That was brilliant. I think that's the best SNL sketch that has been on the air in like three or four years. I love that oh. sketch. He uh, nailed it. He really <laughs> did. Oh Completely my gosh. The shifty eyes and the door, you know. In. <laughs> oh. Brilliant. My favorite part in that this is such a this is such a digression, but it's where he just looks at Bo and Yang, and says "Mr. Mayor" and then walks back into his office. <laughs> because uh, that, of course, is his great fear: is that he's going to get cast as the mayor. Which was the thing that felt the truest to life, because you know, I, 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 I have, I have, I, I've met a fair amount of people like that character, um, and they all seem to take a perverse pleasure in finding their students' greatest fear. And and making a joke of it. Um, but I would ask, do you think that that stereotype is accurate? Do you think that there are people like that Will Ferrell character? And if so, what do we do about him? <laughs> well, yes, sadly, there are some people like that Will Ferrell character. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember years ago at... Um, an AFA conference, AFA is uh, Association for Theater and Higher Education. Mm. And um, someone posed a question to a panel or a gathered group of, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't teachers of acting um, assess the talent of their students? And I'm like, that's a, just the wrong question to Mm -hmm. be asking. And, and I just have never felt like that was appropriate because sure, there are plenty of talented people out there and it's, it's great to work with them, Mm -hmm. but you have to have talent plus you have to have talent plus tenacity and openness and humility. (laughs) And um, the thing is, if you're, if you're, if you're sort of claiming the talent of your students um, then you're doing something very perverse, right? You are, you are feeding. You are vamp. You are a vampire. Yeah. You're feeding off um, their. You know what's good about them, and I, I just that doesn't interest me. I mean, I love, I love working with talented people like yeah. yourself. Aww. Um I wasn't fishing I, for that, I, but I like what I got. Yeah. <laughs> Well, then why have you got a pole in your hair? <laughs> no, I'm teasing. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I know that you weren't. But, I, uh, you know, there are many, many people who have many gifts. Yeah. And that is inspiring and, and delightful. Um, but together we do something that is, you know, if I can mobilize all of those different gifts and get them get the energy circulating, that's far more interesting to me. And that has less to do with talent and more to do with sort of spirit. And um, so, so yeah, I think there are some very egotistical people in the world and what we do about them, uh, I, I choose not to work with them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I was like, when this particular teacher uh, 
mouthed about how she mouthed off about how she was, you know, she felt it was absolutely imperative to tell students that they had no future in the theater. And I'm like, oh, golly, that's not what I want to do. No. <laughs> you know, that's... I mean, I think the theater is a rugged, the, the regional theater or the industry of theater is a very, um, unfortunately impersonal machine Mm -hmm. that sort of can grind people up. If, if folks choose a life in that, they often do it because they, they can withstand that pressure Mm -hmm. and they, they want that more than anything in the world. Mm -hmm. So that, that is, that is their decision, right? I'm, I'm much more interested in creating an alternative universe where we can all express our gifts. Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't want to prepare people for that machine. I want to enable their highest and best selves for whatever it is they're going to do in their lives. And I think theater offers tools yeah. for all those kinds of professions and professional experiences. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, like it's, it's interesting. I do, I get where that teacher was coming from, obviously, because I, I, I suppose from their perspective, it, it might be unfair to encourage someone to go through that machine. If you thought that it would not pay off for them, but and I'm curious to see what you, you think about this, but I, I would argue that, especially at a high school level, but often at a collegiate level, it's very hard to correctly assess someone's talent um, while their brains are still developing and while their experiences are still performing. Because like if you had told me back in high school that at the end of the semester I would graduate college with a a, ma- uh, a, a major in theater, um, I would have said, are you out of your mind? Um, so, but I'm curious what you think about that. Do you think that, um, do you think that talent is something that's fixed or do you think it's something that develops or a bit of both? Oh, well, I think, so I guess I would define talent as sort of raw ability mm-hmm. or potentiality um and and yes craft is developed throughout one's life mm-hmm. and i i guess i would also say can i swear can i swear um uh, okay i'll choose the better word okay <laughs> cuz i saw where i was going i would like for you to but it's sort of a gray area with the okay. station where we also well, haven't decided so. so I've seen some really very talented young people mm-hmm. who have enormous potential, mm-hmm. who who are really gifted, mm-hmm. but who are such jerks. That's the word I shall use, okay. jerks. Um, you probably could have gotten and, away with whatever word I think you were going to use there, but it's all right. <laughs> really? I could have. Well, um, I don't know. There, there's your, one you, your listenership would have just shot through the roof. There's one you could have gotten away with and one you probably couldn't have, but let's just assume you it was jerks. Let's just say it was jerks. Well, um, we're going to say jerks. jerks. Um, so the thing is, um, if you're a jerk, <laughs> uh, then people find that out very quickly. Yeah, they do. And uh, life is short and the community is small. Mm-hmm. Um so you might work once 
because you got the job on the basis of your talent. Mm. But if you are a jerk, you're not going to work again because it's too costly for the, you know, for the enterprise. Yeah. So um, you have to be an, a good person too. Um, and, you know, a good person is somebody who is humble and open and willing to learn and able to learn. And um, so I've seen, for instance, you know, on the spectrum of just sheer material, like somebody with a great, um, you know, talent for, you know, let's say, let's say musical theater, just for argument's sure, sake. Sure. Um, so they have great talent. They can sing, they can dance, they can act reasonably well. Yeah. Those people are going to keep on training and keep on developing. Right. And they're nice enough that they're going to keep on working because people want to be in their presence. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, for me, that sort of tenacity and, and kindness uh, matter equally as much. So I want to cultivate, to the extent that I can, yeah. I want to cult- cultivate those things in my classroom. I, I don't want it to be the Will Ferrell classroom. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Mayor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, I think that's very good. Um, you know, if I can shout out to our own humble department of theater at Denison, sure. I mean, what we have tried to create together, and it is an incredibly uh, collaborative project, mm-hmm. is we're trying to fashion a curriculum that that creates agent agency for our students, so that we're not dependent upon, um, you know, waiting around for the theater to recognize your talent that we're offering opportunities to students to make their own work mm-hmm. and to, um, oh, the dogs are back, <laughs> to, to develop in ways that, that are exciting to them. So, you know, um, we, from it, it's, it's been a long project gestating this, this new curriculum that um, we are we are now uh, sharing with the college um, that has been approved by the college, but but that's the plan is to is is to uh, cre- cultivate a generation of theater makers who are interested in what they have to say and what um, what forms the future of theater is really going to take. Yeah. And if they're not going into the theater, developing their own voices so that whatever they do is going to be richer. Yeah. And they're going to, you know, they're going to be change makers in the theater or elsewhere. And that that feels right. So, you know, poo-poo to the woman who said she had to judge talent. I just think that's really small-minded. Yeah. Um, so I'm really glad to be a Denison. Um well, Professor, I, I think we can all appreciate that. Before I let you go, um, I believe you are directing a play that's opening in just a few weeks. Would you like to plug that? Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> 
plug away. Yes. Do, you, do you know that? Do you know that um, SNL sketch with Harvey Firestein? I don't. I, uh, oh I don't my gosh, you're going to have to seek that out. This, is, this um, has been a good episode yeah. for promoting Saturday Night Live, though. <laughs> such a great, well, such a rotten show so many weeks, but when it hits it, it's so good. Yeah, you know, and we, we don't, this is such a tangent. Um, you know what, now? let's not even get into my opinions about what could make Saturday Night Live better. Um, let's plug your show. Okay, so my show, our show, um, is The Revolutionists by Lauren Gunderson um, about four women who feel very contemporary, but who, three of whom are actual historical figures. Mm -hmm. It takes place in the French Revolution during that period called the Reign of Terror. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's, it's, it's a play about... Um, creativity and connection mm -hmm. in a time of chaos and what could be more appropriate really during this time of pandemic. Um, so we're going to try and uh, the actors are actually on the list to receive the same testing protocol as the athletes. Mm. And, um, we're going to hopefully be able to safely perform without masks in the Sharon Martin theater. Um, but the fully staged production will be broadcast via um, stream. Mm -hmm. So folks can come uh, to their own computer terminals and actually go to the theater uh, on, we, we open on March the 20th at 8 PM so we've got two Saturday nights at 8 p.m. and two Sundays on demand. Ooh. So folks will be able to tune in whenever it is convenient for them on Sunday the 21st and Sunday the 28th of March. One loves to see it. Yeah. Um, well, Professor, thank you so much for uh, for giving us this time. I think we went even over what I said we would, but uh, all oh, good content. you know. A surprise, Adam. <laughs> you and I talking. Do we talk a lot? <laughs> well, I mean, we have a lot to say, the two of us. So this there you is, are. <laughs> we, we, I think that we've said important things during this hour that will improve yeah. the discourse of theatrical studies immensely. Um, there we go. But I think we should release it as a podcast. <laughs> well, this will be a podcast. Fortunately, it will be available in podcast form um, after it airs. Yes, I will send that to you, Professor. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hang up now. Um, so thank you very much, um, and please take care. And doobie listeners, that was Dr. Cheryl McFerrin of the Denison Theater Department. Go and see the Revolutionists. I am Adam Venrick. This has been Adam's Apple. You've been listening to The Doobie.